I'm Mark Hennick. This is So-Called Normal. Mental health in 2020. Regardless of how you view it, handle it, or live with it, mental health has never been more top of mind than it is today. The stresses of life add up. And since March, when this pandemic hit, everyday life has been anything but routine. Given the last few months, we can all understand how important timely diagnosis and proper treatment are for those living with mental health issues. For many, living well is work. In the next 25 minutes or so, we're going to talk about mental health, along with the hurdles and landmines that go along with not feeling well. Jen is a 32-year-old woman from Ottawa, Canada. She remembers living with anxiety since she was a child. I suspect all little kids worry, but I can remember just being preoccupied with worry and anxiety all the time. Mm. So from the time I woke up in the morning to the time I went to sleep at night, um, I can just remember being preoccupied with, oh God, everyone's looking at me. Just like these, it sounds narcissistic, but anxiety can be that way. And so can depression, I suppose. Um, So just a constant kind of overwhelming anxiousness and worry that I was being judged and I'm not good enough and I don't have, like, no one loves me. Um, It's kind of hard to explain. I would kind of oscillate in and out of kind of a state of depression and a state of anxiety. But I just remember feeling like a kind of constant nagging fear that I'm not good enough. I need to um, kind of prove myself to everyone around me. Mm. Um, Just constant worry all the time (laughs) and how did that impact you at school um so school was a constant fear for me to Mm. be completely honest i loved school because i was relatively academic in fact i was put in like enrichment at a pretty young age um i loved it but i can remember you know simultaneously being terrified to come to school because i knew i would have to sit in a room with other people Um, What if I got called upon, you know, to answer a question in front of the class? Um, I, you know, going out to recess was always nerve wracking for me, you know, like Mm. I always felt, you know, I I had friends and I fit in and I had a social circle, but I kind of just had this weird looming fear all the time about some impending doom. It's hard to explain Mm -hmm. because... (laughs) There, you know, I was not like deathly ill. I was physically abled. Like my family didn't have a lot of money, but there was not a constant realistic sense of doom. It's just anxiety does that. It's bizarre. Mm-hmm. You know, it's something that I, I often find interesting, especially now when people talk about their own experiences with mental illnesses that um, and you're not the only one who does this. I think it's actually the most common thing I've ever heard uh, is that people feel like or they seem to feel like uh, they need to apologize for their experiences or that they they don't have the words for it, for example, or, or it might seem strange, mm-hmm. all this stuff. 
these are actually some of the most common uh, experiences of anxiety. It, it's like everybody goes or not everybody, but everybody who has anxiety describes it the same way that you are. But we all feel for mm-hmm. some reason that we need to qualify it or justify it or, or uh, you know, yeah. um, put put uh, make it seem OK when, of course, it already is OK. I, and I wonder why that is. You know, did you experience when you were a kid um, any kind of uh, messages either either um, overtly or implicitly to tell you that it wasn't OK to feel this way, that how you were feeling wasn't normal or wasn't acceptable? I think my first real interaction with mental illness would have been, I have a friend, one of my best friends whose dad has bipolar disorder or manic depression as it used to be called, I guess. Um, But no one talked about it. It was very quiet. We all kind of knew like, oh, okay. So he takes meds for something, whatever. He doesn't work all the time, but we never talked about it. Um, Yeah, it was very hush hush, you know, don't talk about it. It's weird. There's something wrong, you know. It's none of our business. Yeah. So when did, uh, or, or I guess who was the first person to notice that, hey, maybe something is going on with you that is a, a little bit more serious than, than typical um, stress. Uh, maybe there's something clinical going on. Do you remember who the first person to notice that was? Um, me. <laughs> you, okay. Definitely. No, because it, so, that's not always the yeah. case. <laughs> I never really had a word to kind of quantify it or define it. Um, but you know, like not like I had physical symptoms of just constant fear, knots in my stomach. I would get Mm. headaches. I would cry. I would internalize a lot of stuff. And it wasn't really until I would say high school. And I think I mentioned this to your colleague, uh, Steve, um, that, you know, it kind of, you know, puberty happens, all that kind of stuff. And, I kind of reached my breaking point where I'd kind of been telling my parents for a number of years, I need help. Like there's something wrong. Like I don't think the mm-hmm. the anxiety and the sadness that I'm experiencing are normal. Um, I really need help. So yeah, honestly, yeah. I, until, so it, and it, well, I, I should say I saw, sorry. No, I was, I was, I was going to ask. So it's, it sounds like from, it took a solid, from what it sounds like, seven or eight years from the earliest onset of, of what we're probably what we now know or what you now know were probably symptoms uh, until something actually happened where you we started to identify that there was something going on. Uh, that's a, a long time of carrying that fear and anxiety and depression. Mm-hmm. Um, and I might get a little emotional about it right now because I think a lot about it and I was kind of mulling it over on the weekend, flipping through old photos and journals and so on. And like, I, there's just so many pictures I see of myself, um, you know, just looking really sad. Um, mm. And it, you know, doesn't take a lot for me to kind of uh, transport myself back there and just kind of remember those feelings. I mean, I would say I've come a very long way, but um, you know, you still get that kind of feeling you want to shrug and say, why me? Why did this happen to me? Could be worse. But mm. I mean, I just remember feeling a ton of sadness and anxiety and feeling really alone and having no one to talk about it uh, with. Um, yeah. And until I basically kind of had to force my mom to come with me to see my doctor at the time uh, in, I don't remember, I think it was grade 11. Uh, you know, I 
it took that long for me to kind of see a professional to talk about it. Mm -hmm. And how did your mom respond uh, when you brought her? I mean, you said you you had to drag her along with you. So um, what was that like? Yeah. Um, And it's to this day, it's still the same. Um, Mm -hmm. I hope she doesn't listen to this interview because she'll probably deny it and be pissed off. Um, Like, I have a feeling it's incredibly difficult for parents of kids to ever admit, you know, there might be something wrong with their kid when it's not something that's necessarily visible, right? Mm -hmm. You know, if your kid needs a wheelchair because they have muscular dystrophy, or if your kid needs insulin because they have diabetes, it's a lot easier, obviously, I suspect, to come to terms with. But I think to this day, (laughs) I'm in my 30s, I still don't think my parents have fully acknowledged or understand um, what mental illness is about and that I live with it, um, frankly. (laughs) Dr. Christina Iglesia is a clinical psychologist based out of the San Francisco Bay Area. She works with adolescents and young adults. She's also the founder of the hashtag therapy is cool mental health action campaign. She aims to raise awareness around mental health and to reduce stigma. We spoke to her about the anxiety that children and teens face. I've seen statistics that have ranged uh, as high as 70% or more of adults who say or who have a mental illness uh, say that it began in childhood or adolescence. Um, mm-hmm. Is it something to do with identity development? Is there a critical mm. period in childhood and adolescence wherein if you get d- experience depression or anxiety or, or adverse childhood events or whatever it is within that critical period, then it becomes integrated into your identity in mm. some ways? I love that you're bringing this up because I think that we are still trying to explore this. I think that mental health continues to be one of the most complex, multifactored, faceted parts of just life and trying to figure out when we start to show symptoms, when we start to integrate kind of these behaviors, these difficulties, we hope to then be able to track and intervene so that potentially future generations wouldn't have the struggles. So to say that potentially could be part of our identity development, I wouldn't rule it off the table. We are trying to figure out, are mental health struggles genetic? Are they biological? Are they psychological? Is it nature versus nurture? We're constantly kind of like throwing things at the wall, hoping that we continue to figure out what sticks. Because once we figure something out about mental health, it changes, right? New research comes out, new medications come out, and then suddenly what we thought existed or we thought how a mental health issue worked, it doesn't. So we're constantly kind of trying to hone in on this moving target, which is why are so many people struggling? Why are the statistics getting worse? And I think a lot of us have our own professional, personal beliefs, which is, you know, the world is, struggling. And the more that the world collectively struggles, the more the people in the world, right, us as humans individually are going to struggle. And things tend to continue to pile up even, right, year 2020, where everything is going wrong, right? We are seeing an increase in mental health issues. And, And that isn't surprising because we can only tolerate so much without 
needing support or assistance or, you know, respite. Our bodies can only handle so much just as our minds can only handle so much. Mm-hmm. Our upbringing, social experiences, the lack of knowledge, and of course the stigma, all can be and often are issues when mental illness enters the family home. For parents, siblings, and other family members, mental illness can be confusing, frustrating, and for some families, there's a very real sense of hopelessness as they try to come to terms with the what and the how surrounding mental illness. In 2020, and to no one's surprise, Canada's medical community continues to see more and more people like Jen needing help, needing direction, and wanting a proper diagnosis. Dr. Jennifer Swainson is a general adult psychiatrist in Edmonton, Alberta. In addition to her clinical work, Dr. Swainson teaches medical students and residents in psychiatry. She's also an active researcher with a particular focus on treatment-resistant depression. She's recently authored and co-authored several publications on this topic. Her other major research area is in the interactions between diet and mental health, and it's my real honor to have her join me on the show today to talk about complex treatment pathways for depression. Dr. Swainson, thanks for joining me today. Yeah, thanks for having me, Mark. As I've been listening to people's stories, uh, they've had a variety of interactions with the mental health care system, and specifically uh, the the health the medical health care system uh, across Canada. So I'm wondering if, uh, for the benefit of our listeners uh, who may not know the the kind of division of duties uh, of of mental health care providers in Canada, can you tell me a bit more about how you define psychiatry's role uh, in mental health treatment? Mm-hmm. Okay, yeah, good question. So. Um, psychiatrists are medical doctors, so we are physicians, we go to medical school, um, and our role primarily is typically in the medication management aspect um, of mental illnesses. Um, certainly there, there are psychiatrists that do different forms of therapy as well. Um, however, the way the system is in Canada right now, there's such demand for mental health care. I think most psychiatrists uh, generally don't do therapy just because we don't have the time to, you know, book longer appointments to provide that to our patients. So typically, um, any type of therapy treatment um, is usually done by other mental health therapists that have backgrounds in psychology or social work or occupational therapy and those types of things. The challenges come when someone doesn't respond to the first or the second treatment that a family doctor tries. And Mm -hmm. that's where, uh, you know, the expertise of a psychiatrist can come in. Sometimes there's uh, things diagnostically that we pick up that maybe would have been missed um, that would affect treatment course. Uh, Sometimes there's suggestions in terms of uh, subtleties with medications, be it the dosing or the choice of medication or the combination of medications uh, that we can provide advice on. That might well describe Jen's experience. Like so many others, it was her family doctor who provided an initial diagnosis. How did your first um, experience with the doctor uh, go, you know, with your mother there with you, uh, disclosing what you were feeling? Um, Was that a helpful interaction Mm -hmm. with you, with that doctor? Well, yeah, I mean, absolutely. And in the initial stages, it felt like a vindication. Absolutely. It felt like a vindication. Mm -hmm. So 
I, it was just with my family doctor at the time. And it was the first time I felt like someone kind of validated, you know, something that I'd basically been Googling and reading about on WebMD and Wikipedia or whatever resources were available, you know, in the early 2000s. Um, or I should say mid 2000s. Um, but even still, you know, my mom was very adamant that I not be put, for instance, on antidepressants, because I remember her saying, mm. oh, well, I heard, you know, on Oprah that that risk that brings like an escalated risk of a heightened risk of suicide and all the, she, she kind of just had a lot of weird, you know, like assumptions about, you know, psychiatry and like the need for treatment. And, and obviously finances were an enormous problem. I come from a pretty working class family with, we really didn't have a lot of money growing up. Um, and like I said, I'm the first in my family to go to university, just a lot of things I was kind of trying to break away from and there just were not resources. Mm. There weren't an abundance of resources available um, to me at the time, unfortunately. And even though my mom maybe somewhere inside her wanted to help facilitate and help connect me with those things, they just weren't there. So when you visited the doctor that first time, were you diagnosed with something? Did you get a diagnosis then? Honestly, Mark, I can't remember. Um, <laughs> I just remember kind of like a vague indication. Um, she said, I think you should go home and Google anxiety. It sounds like you're dealing with some anxiety issues, um, which are fairly common in teenagers. I think you should just go home and Google it. Um, so so you know, wait, sorry, you, you, were, you were prescribed, yeah, as a treatment modality, you were prescribed Google? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Basically, yeah, yeah. I mean, I don't know if it was kind of a cry for help or what it was, but at a certain point, I I kind of wound up in the hospital for the for the first time. Um, so I think it was toward the end of grade eleven. So, you know, I was doing a lot of drinking and just denial and kind of suppressing kind of how I was feeling and hiding it, given that you know I just didn't really feel seen or heard. Um, obviously. <laughs> And uh, mm. at a certain point, I ended up uh, at Chio in the hospital. My family doctor kind of basically had to force my mom and tell her, you know, I think she really needs help. I think you need to take her to the psychiatric ward at the Children's Hospital of Eastern Ontario. So I wound up there mm. for 10 days, um, mm. which wasn't really much help either, to be honest. But at least it kind of helped substantiate my situation a little bit more. I think at that point, it became um a little clearer at least to my parents that there was something wrong and i needed help mm. um and also from that point on my doctor really emphasized like okay she needs therapy clearly like i'm gonna recommend this psychologist so at that point i was pointed to um uh an independent practicing psychologist in ottawa mm -hmm. who i started seeing um mm -hmm. and saw for a number of years intermittently. Hmm. Now, how to, of course, in, in um, Ontario and actually in most places in Canada, um, psychology and psychotherapy generally doesn't get much coverage from public health insurance either. Um, was this somebody who was mm -hmm. part of a publicly funded program or did you have to pay out of pocket for that treatment? No, nope, we had to pay out of pocket, if I recall correctly. Um, hmm. I think she was $150 an hour 
Um, she yeah. might have started at, she's like, I work on a sliding scale, blah, blah, blah. Um, so I recall vaguely that my grandparents helped pay for it in the beginning. Mm. And then it kind of just fell on my mom. Uh, I have no idea how my parents paid for it, to be completely honest with you. Um, I mean, back, that wouldn't have been your, as, point, a, as a kid, that wouldn't have really been your, your concern. <laughs> Usually young people don't think about how that kind of stuff gets paid for. We just assume that well, it's available. Well, I felt sure. But I, I mean, I felt the anxiety, like, I mean, it added to my stress. Mm. Um, and to this day, I feel mm. like I'm made to feel guilty about it, honestly, because it was expensive. Um, but it was in, I would say imperative at the time it was really necessary. I was being treated through um, cognitive behavioral therapy. Um, mm -hmm. I've learned in more recent history that dialectical behavioral therapy is a little bit better for me, um, I find, because I'm kind of, I haven't been diagnosed with it, but I'm on the spectrum of borderline personality disorder and we tend to prefer DBT over CBT. Um, mm -hmm. <laughs> but uh, all this to say, yeah, I mean, I just remember feeling guilty, like every appointment, like shit, you know, this is probably costing my parents a lot of money. They don't have a lot of money. Uh, should I be here? You know, and then at a certain point, I ended up paying for those appointments um, as I got a little bit mm. older into my 20s. Um, yeah. Through all these years, especially the long delays in um, reaching out for help and getting a diagnosis and then the long delays that you experienced in being in and out of hospital and with medications and, and trying to afford the public system, um, after all that you've been through, how are you doing now? Um, overall, Mark, I would say I'm okay. <laughs> I'm pretty good. Um, I'm, you know... My employment situation is a little questionable, but that's the case for millions of Canadians right now because of the COVID pandemic, obviously. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and journalism isn't always a very sustainable field, but I'm, you know, I'm working on it. And I don't know, my sense of kind of self is getting a little better. Um, mm -hmm. That for me is like one of the hardest things. Like depression has this really fantastic ability to kind of rob you of your sense of self and just your knowing of who you are and like what you stand for and what you believe in and to stand in that, you know, in a solid way, you know, unwaveringly and just know who you are and be proud of it. Um, I'm not in that place yet. Like I, <laughs> I don't wake up every day and say, yeah, I'm great. Like I'm good. I can, you know, get out of bed and start my day and, you know, and walk confidently, you know, to a friend's or whatever. But it's, yeah, I'll be, I would say like, it's, it's a daily, you know, challenge. Um, the hardest thing for me is kind of, you know, just being responsible about it and knowing that this is something that you have to be proactive and constant, constantly vigilant about right? And that depression does relapse sometimes. And, you know, like hardships and triggering events and things are inevitable in life and they're going to keep happening. And uh, a, a psychiatrist actually in the hospital used the term armor, uh, telling me that the best thing I can possibly do for myself is arm myself with the best kind of metaphorical armor in terms of treatment mm -hmm. and my own strength to 
brace myself for if and when I relapse again or if, you know, difficult tri- triggering things happen or or whatever. Like that's the absolute best way to to deal with it and to keep talking about it um, when I feel, you know, strong enough to do, to do so. You've been listening to a special episode of So-Called Normal with Mark Hennick. If you like what you heard, share the episode with others. You can always follow Mark on Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, YouTube, and Instagram at Mark Hennick. Otherwise, you might want to check out his website, markhennick.com. This special series of So-Called Normal has been produced by Mark Hennick and Eye Contact Productions. I'm Dave Trafford. This episode of So-Called Normal is brought to you by an educational grant from Janssen, Inc. Mark Hennick and the producers of So-Called Normal are solely responsible for the content of the episode and the views and opinions expressed in this episode do not necessarily represent the views or opinions of Janssen, Inc. The podcast content is provided for informational purposes only and is not intended as medical advice. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified health provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition, product, or treatment. Never disregard professional medical advice or delay in seeking it because of something you have read or seen in this podcast episode.